Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Elio with the Spectrum Strategy Group, and today I am here uh, with Carol and Matthew Newell, and I'm so happy to have you both here. I know we've uh, we met a little while ago um, to talk about uh, some of your work, and I'm really happy to bring that to people today. And um, just as a, a kind of a little teaser before I have you introduce yourselves, um, you know, the name of your recent book is healing um, healing your child's brain and you know when I first looked at that I was like oh well wait what well, first I was like what about me <laughs> and then I was like oh well wait a minute this could be really interesting and I'm curious um, about you know about what what work this is about and as I kind of read into it more I was like no I'm, I'm super interested and and I'm so happy that you both reached out to me so um so welcome and I will let you both introduce yourselves okay Carol how about you go first okay thank you <laughs> so uh, my name is Carol Newell and uh, I started working with uh, children at a very young age and always interested in children with special needs I had a cousin who had special needs and that's what kind of got me started into this field and um, my passion was to work with children and particularly those who were finding it challenging. And uh, along the way of learning about child, early childhood education, which is where I started my career with, because I think it's important to know what's typical development, then you can then you can see what's happening typically and what is a challenge. Um, so along the way, I, um, I found that um, it was uh, really, really exciting to, um, to be able to watch the, the brain develop and see the magic that happens in a typically developing child. And then um, to say, well, what's, what's, the, what's happening with these children who are, are challenged? And particularly when it came to children who had neurological challenges um, and looking at the brain and how the brain works. Um, so that's why we called our book Healing Your Child's Brain, because this is a process that typical children go through very fast. And for children who are not developing typically, where's the breakdown and what's getting in the way of their development? And uh, it's been a lifelong journey to learn that and to be able to put, um, put it in the hands of parents now um, through our work clinically and also over the years and, and now in a book, which is exciting to us. Yeah, most definitely. So Matthew, I think you're up now. <laughs> so my name is Matthew. I started really in the field back in the early 80s. I was going to college and studying kinesiology and exercise physiology, exercise science. I was on the wrestling team and I used my time um, to go into the clinic at the university to help out as part of my ongoing learning and training. And 
And what intrigued me was um, those folks who were coming in who had neurological issues and were really struggling. And it occurred to me that you know, this is really, really what I want to do. This is, it, it clicked. And I then began studying child brain development and brain development. And the thing that was really impressive to me was that the brain grows, the brain can mature, the brain can change. And it takes love and it takes a plan and it takes consistency and it takes frequency, intensity, and duration. And I saw that those folks who were getting kids and adults who were getting consistent therapeutic protocols in play, they got better. And the ones that weren't really getting the consistency weren't really getting that much better. And the ones that we were working on the brain as opposed to the symptom of the brain, which is the tighter hand or the, the speech that wasn't quite great due to a neurological issue that those folks that we were working on inside the brain, they got better faster. So for the last 40 years, uh, I have just been, you know, working and studying and trying to figure out ways to get inside the human brain and um, create neuroplasticity for children, whether they're blind, deaf, paralyzed, whether they're on um, what we now call the spectrum, or what is now called cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, whatever the label is these days, which changes every seems to decade. We labeled one of my kids mentally retarded back in you know early two hundred, you know, early two thousand, and she had a learning issue. She, we adopted her, and she had a learning issue, and um, they called her mentally retarded and said she would never have uh, a reading level higher than third grade. We um, really didn't challenge them to the extent of we healed her brain at home with neurological therapeutic protocols that we understood her brain. And yeah, she went to school at times. We homeschooled her a lot because she couldn't make it. But the idea is that the brain can grow and the parents can be involved. And although healing sounds provocative in these days, children, we found that regardless of the degree or extent of the injury to the central nervous system, the brain has the capacity to change and grow as a result of stimulation. That's what it does. Um, so that's why we call it healing your child's brain as opposed to healed or you will heal. No, it's an ongoing process. And it's 40 years of experience, 40 years of being on our knees, 40 years of seeing kids from six continents and 35 different countries, dealing with the kids who are blind, kids with seizures, kids with epilepsy, kids with attention deficit disorder, kids, it doesn't matter really. The range of neurological disorganization affects every single family in the United States and around the world. Everyone knows a child who they love and adore who's struggling. And we want to put this information into the hands of parents. Instead of doing it ourselves, we want to teach people how, we want to come alongside and mentor them and guide them and support them. Because the parents are the heroes. The parents are the ones who are every day getting up trying to figure this thing out. They want options. They want options that make sense. They want scientific options. They want options that they can see, well, if I go down this pathway, I have a chance of winning. I go down this way, I'm going to manage this brain with medications and whatever. And I understand that. I get that. But if we go down that pathway, we have a chance at neuroplasticity. And since the brain grows by stimulation, hmm. So that's what we want to do. We teach a lecture. We finally sat down in between hours and nights and weekends to put this 
you know, on paper. They said we could only have 230 pages. <laughs> uh, that was just a crunch of what do we don't say about how the brain can grow? And so we, you know, we think it grows with nutrition. We think it grows with love and hugs. We think it grows with stimulation. We think it grows with attention, which is born out of intention. And so Kyle and I just figured out the time. It was probably 20 years too late to, to write this book, but we, you know, <laughs> well, we no, have just family. Yeah, just think of all you've learned in this time, though, right? In order to to put it together um, and be able to reach, I think, a, a, a broader audience and maybe people who aren't able to travel um, to to one of your workshops or something like that. So, so I, I a couple things as I as I hear you talking, and I know we've chatted before, and I've looked through you know your content. Um, I think about you have a very strong emphasis on family. In fact, you own a center that's called the Family Hope Center. Um, and I watched, you know, a couple of interviews. And one of the things that, I, that struck me was that, um, and having worked with many, many families and individuals themselves, right, hope is one of the things that people are looking for. And I, and I you know, Carol, I think it was you were the one at, in that particular, you know, interview that said that. Um, and I think that's true. I think families are looking for hope. They're looking for other solutions. I know, in my case, I had looked up I can't imagine how many resources, you know, just to figure out what what was happening here. And I know um, so that so that's one piece. And I think I, I like your emphasis on family because I think you know family engagement is actually a very big part of even the education world right now, right? Federally and statewide, you know, all across. Um, really, this understanding that that family connection is so huge um, for child development. But then I also like that you have the science in there, and I know that you have a lot of uh, information in your book and also other uh, on your website all over about how the brain develops. And again, it's something that's fascinated me for a while, um, but I, I just find it super interesting. And it's I like how you connect the two, right? Where is this? Let's let's teach people about the brain, how it works, how it functions, and then you know, as, as families, how do we support that development? How do we support that function? Um, and so I'm really curious about, you know, what does that look like from a practical standpoint, right? Anyone who listens to the podcast know I'm all about strategies, right? That's what my, that's my company name, but, <laughs> but it's all about um, how do we make this practical? And I think that's, it sounds like that's what you're trying to do with families is, right? How do we make this practical, um, and also having been, you know, being a parent, right, you get so much information thrown at you, especially when there's a, a new diagnosis or you're just still trying to figure it out. Um, there's so much information and you're just trying to figure out, like, what do I do? And, and one of the things in working with families also is you have to pick what works for your family for, right, what kind of resources you have and where you're located in the world, right? Everybody has access to different things. So I'm curious how what you're talking about fits into all of that kind of uh, that paradigm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I was uh, heard a quote recently um, that Albert Einstein was, was said to have spoken and they asked him, how do you solve a problem? I mean, how do you go about solving a problem? He said, well, I spend 90 to 95% of my time defining the problem. Once I define it, I spend 5% of my time doing it. And the first thing that we do in a practical way in the book, and, you know, 
when you read it is we map the brain. We have to show people that you do have a brain. It has different levels. These different levels do these things. It's really, really cool how it's been manufactured and developed. And if you understand that this part does this, all of a sudden it opens up. So from a practical standpoint, if the parents can see the map of their brain, whatever strategy which follows in the book, but the first part of the book is, can you actually see the brain as opposed to the symptoms? Symptoms will drive you to the brain, but they'll also drive you crazy. But if you can understand it, why does he put his hands over his ears? Why does he bite his fingernails? Why does he punch his brother? Why can't he learn something one day and then learn it the next day? What, what's, what, what's going on? Once you see the practicality of how you can measure, like how much money you have in the bank, allows you to decide whether you're going to buy this house or do this. Once you measure it, then you can sit back and whatever neurological strategy that you decide to do with the time and effort and finances that you have, you can measure progress based on that. So if I have a scale that measures my weight, and I'm pretty sure that it's pretty accurate, I can go on whatever diet with confidence knowing that if I drop weight, that the diet must be working if I feel healthy. So from a practical standpoint, parents don't understand the brain. They want to, but they think it's this mystery, it's a complicated, oh my gosh, it sounds like neurosurgery. But it's actually pretty magnificent. And once you see it, you go, I got it. I knew that to be true. So from a practical standpoint, we first measure, and then we give parents a routine to follow throughout the day. Whether it's they have an hour, let's make your hour the best hour you can make it. If you have two hours to work with your child, let's make that the best two hours to target the areas of the brain that are most effective and compromised by near drowning. I saw a child this week who was near drowning. I saw a child this week that had Botox injections that, that further hurt him. I saw a child who had carbon monoxide poisoning and hurt his brain. I saw a child that had a brain bleed and it caused him to be blind and paralyzed and having seizures every day. But now he reads and he doesn't have any seizures anymore. So once parents see the practicality of the brain, they breathe. They don't hyperventilate so much. And then whatever they do, they do the strategy. Um, and whatever strategy they decide to do, we have one that we, we've refined over the years because we want to be perfect. I mean, um, I, I would like to be perfect, but I'm not. But I would like to be in this regard. But over the years, we have figured out like, okay, this clinically changes this. If we do this with this type of frequency, intensity, and duration, this child will go from this particular point to this particular point, and we can measure it in a neurodevelopmental way, as opposed to just guessing or hoping that it will it will develop. Carol, do you have a more practical way of? No, I mean, I think I think you you've said the most important things: measuring first, and that that whole point of measuring is so important for the parents to understand. If nothing else, if you understand your child and where those challenges are coming from. That eases your mind and, and it helps you in the whole process of under, you know, just to be able to understand where those things are coming from and why your child behaves in certain ways or does certain things. Um, and then including, the, you know, as Matthew said, we have, we have mapped out therapies and treatments and we include the whole family in the treatment for the child. And um, depending on the situation with the family, you know, sometimes it's grandparents helping, sometimes it's aunts and uncles, often it's siblings. 
uh, we, you know, a lot of siblings are very, you know, can be traumatized and have difficulties um, in various ways. They could be sad that they see their parents sad. They could be sad that they see their, you know, sibling hurt. Um, you know, when a child has difficulty with behavior, then that can be very disruptive within the family. And then the other children um, have difficulties with that whole process. So helping the siblings as they get old enough to understand that there's their brother or sister's brain, that is really important. And when they're younger and at all ages, making them part of the whole process that we don't have to just put all our attention on this one child and you're not part of that process. No, we're a family. So how can we include everybody within the family in, in the healing process? Uh, because it's healing for the one child that needs more attention and time, yes. But it's also a healing process for the family and it's a learning process. And uh, the siblings become really strong um, in that in that process. You know, I think a lot of times parents are, uh, initially very concerned what about the, what about the brother and the sister and won't this be difficult for them they're definitely concerned about those things um but in the we find that in the long run those siblings are really strong human beings they become strong because uh, they've had to you know have adversity that maybe others other kids in their classroom and friends that they have haven't had to to go through um, but it but it gives them a level of empathy compassion understanding um, and, um, you know, when we have a couple of siblings in, in the book who've written story, you know, their story and told their story. And it's absolutely beautiful to see them put into words. Um, you know, I, so there's one girl in the book whose name is Isabella. And she, um, when she, she wrote this story in her book, but I remember the first time I met her and her looking at me and, and, you know, and asking, she said, can you help me? And I said, what is it you need help with? And she said, I just want to be able to play with my sister. And and I almost wanted to sit there and cry with her over that. But we came up with a strategy and I helped her. And she did such a beautiful job just understanding how to play with her sister, who just wasn't interacting with anybody at the time. But but she she did great with that. And uh, she's very much part of her sister's life, you know, which is yeah. awesome. So, so you bring up something that I, I interviewed um, another woman who wrote a book called The First Gifts of Autism. And, um, you know, one of the things she, she talks about is this sibling relationship. And also this, the, ver the same concept, like um, want the, the youngest sister wanting to be able to play with the twin sisters. Um, and, and that play was going to look different than I think the family had originally anticipated. And, and that family also is a huge focus on the family unit um, as being key. And, you know, one thing, this reminds me similar to when we talk about an individualized family service plan, right, which is what happens before the age of three, <laughs> maybe it'll go to five, but usually three when they enter preschool. Um, and so, right, it, there's such a huge emphasis on the family and support of the family. And once the child enters school, we move to that IEP at age three, right, which is now it's almost like the family kind of falls off and and what you're proposing here and you know so many so many individuals are diagnosed way after the age of three and have never been in that part that kind of program I think you're offering a, a similar approach um, and so one of the things I would I'm curious about is what is it what does it look like right so so you're talking about mapping the brain and kind of you know I'm all about 
self-assessment. I used to do professional development in a past life. Um, and it was all about building self-awareness, right? And building um, this knowledge about where you're at, what are you good at, what do you need to work on? And we, we're always changing and evolving in that. So it sounds like this is a similar approach that you're proposing here. Um, but how do, how do we do that kind of assessment? Or at least in your program, how would you do that kind of assessment? Well, as, if you if you look at our book and um, you have a chance to read it, there's a very practical way to say you have the medulla oblongata, you have the pons, which is for a whole bunch of things like paying attention and focus and total training and tracking. And you have the midbrain, then you have the cortex, then you have the limbic brain, which is where most of the kids who are on the spectrum are really hurt in the limbic brain. The limbic brain runs 40% of your brain. It runs through your sense of smell. So from a practical standpoint, we actually do the, we teach the parents how to actually at home, actually go and give the kids some smells and find out what smells he finds disgusting and what smells he finds refreshing. And we stimulate that. So let's say lots of kids who are diagnosed on the spectrum, they don't eat very many foods. So it, it's, there's, a, there's a window of what they'll eat. The rest of them, it'll be, it'll be thrown against the wall or it'll be just left at the table. And so we have a bunch of, <coughs> excuse me, a bunch of kids that eat maybe three foods they walk through the door with. Uh, fish, you know, the, the, the cheese fish, the yellow mm -hmm. cheese fish, uh, maybe a power bar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. and maybe, maybe like a hot dog. That's it. And the parents are like, okay, well, first of all, if I ate that, my brain chemistry would go <laughs> in the tank also. But I understand. So when we show them that, you know what, your child doesn't have a psychological problem about boot. He has a real one. When you roast chicken with rosemary and broccoli and gravy, it blows his brain up. So we would introduce five smells five times a day to the child, but it would be like at an arm's length away. We would kind of wave it towards his nose. So we would say, this pathway is in complete distortion for whatever reason, could have been whatever, vaccination, whatever happened that his brain hated these smells, we would introduce those smells. These same kids, by the way, if I gave them like a disgusting fish food, they would start sniffing on it as if it was, you know, coffee and humidifying the jar. So I thought, okay, this kid's in real distortion. So I'm going to introduce five different smells five times a day. And what we find six months later, carrots are okay now, or chicken is okay, or Broccoli is okay. So we then can introduce this food into his life, which changes the neurochemistry of his brain. Because 50% of your neurochemicals are made in your large intestines. But if you're not eating correct, or because it's blowing you up, that's real. You can't make that up. Then we, what we find is after the first year, we have kids who went from three foods to 16. The second year from 16 to 28. Third year, this kid's eating, you know, Mexican food one night or next night they're eating Italian, all organic, gluten-free, by the way, because we know gluten, one molecule of gluten can produce 18 opiates in the brain. That's science. So opiates aren't really all that good for you if you're already struggling with focus. So we have the kids on a practical gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, preservative-free diet. That's so the neurochemicals get to his brain. 
But then on a practical basis, parents could do five spells five times a day, you know, and over time, the children begin to tolerate that, which means their brain growth. And then we might take them out for a walk three times a day. We're going to walk 30 minutes in a nice cross pattern, and we're going to huff and puff. Or let's say they're really struggling with um, sounds. So we say, well, sounds come from the midbrain. Filtering comes from the midbrain and the ponds, the lower levels. If I keep on my hands and knees with this child 100 yards for 100 days, I will stimulate the basal ganglia which is, and the thalamus, which is responsible to support filtering through the reticular formation. And then when I do the auditory program, it'll work. Because right now when I did the auditory program, I paid a lot of money for it. Six months later, it doesn't work anymore. Hmm. I got to use the motor pathway to secure the sensory pathway, which is how you and I, you know, we're motor human beings. 60% of our brain's motor, language, manual, mobility. So we use the motor pathway to reinforce the sensory pathway. And we go back to the beginning of time and say, well, look, all kids develop in this hierarchical complexity. All kids crawl on their belly, or they should. They creep on their hands and knees, and they walk. Well, if certain parts of the brain are not happy, we go back to the future. We go back into the chunks of brain that he did not get enough of to filter his language or to focus or to track or to control his tongue. And we find remarkable progress by just repeating wellness mm -hmm. with the kids. And yeah, parents I mean, do that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and it's interesting because some of what you're talking about reminds me of, you know, when we're looking at different therapy modalities like, you know, occupational therapy, for example, you know, a lot of when we're talking about building, let's say, a sensory diet for sensory sensitivities, um, you know, whether no matter which ones they are, we would talk about um, creating this sensory diet, which would include movement, right? And then, so I do some research in yoga, because that's my other, you know, special interest of my own. And we talk about, you know, dealing with trauma and in, in order to access areas of healing for trauma, first we have to introduce movement. So, so it's really interesting this concept of um, you know using movement as a pathway to kind of tap into other areas of neurology. That, yeah, we think you know, it's vital. Yeah, yeah, no, I, mm -hmm. I mean, and and I don't think anyone could necessarily argue with, you know, movement being a healthy thing to do on, on a regular basis. Um, you but what know. they do argue with, Elia, which is what we try to make in a scientific, practical way, is that all babies crawl on their belly if they're given the opportunity. And that orchestrates and integrates at least 20 different primary reflexes by itself. And when they crawl, they develop their breathing, they develop tongue control, tracking with their vision, they develop the ability to regulate the behavior, to sleep at night, to tour the train, to focus, to filter sounds, and to be self-motivated because that's the part of the brain that is the basics for self-motivation. And when babies don't crawl on their belly, they struggle with these activities. So when we see kids in the clinic and we say, listen, I want to see how you crawl on their belly, and they can't do it, interesting, they have a hard time with regulating. They have a hard time with filtering. They, they, their speech is really poor. They don't, they still don't potty train at seven years old. They have a hard time being self-motivated. So when we get them back to crawling on the belly, which everybody says, that's old fashioned, but that's how well kids do it, okay? 
you can get it back to 100 yards 100 times, 100, 100 yards for 100 days. Bingo. All these, all these abilities emerge because we spend time in the kitchen or we spend time in the living room or we spend time. So different rooms of your house have different functions. And if you get it, you go, oh, gosh, you know what? I, I adopted him. He never, at two years old, I don't know the foggiest idea whether he could. Or, you know what? My child laid on his back all the time because I thought that was okay. Or he got hurt at 18 months of age from some particular injury, and he doesn't have these abilities anymore. Hmm. You know what? If I go back to that, I can recapitulate the ontogeny of human development, and I can cycle back. And what we find is that the parents that cycle back and do the basics of human mobility, crawl, creep, run, gymnastics, vestibular. Yes, of course, horseback riding and yoga and swimming, those things are beautiful. They, they, that's like the next tier. But if I can anchor him, then I can move forward. And that's where people go, well, that seems old-fashioned. We want to make it easier for kids. Well, our idea is that we want to make kids capable. But if we teach the parents why it works, they get excited because they go, oh, gosh, that's exactly right. Sure. And I would think if you if you tell children most, you know, at, at most ages can understand, at, you know, if, if uh, explained at their level can understand how that how that could work as well. Um, so I do want to go back a little bit to the food thing, right? Because I know <laughs> food sensitivities or food challenges are, are a big piece as well. Um, you know, it sounds like some of the approach that you're taking is a little bit of exposure therapy, right? Like it's like, hey, you know, let's, let's see what smells um, are preferential. Maybe we get you to taste something or at least be at the table with you with other things. Um, you know, there are a lot of food specialists out there who work just in, right, you know, just in this space as well. Um, you know, but again, we have this challenge sometimes where if our kids will only eat, you know, goldfish and chicken nuggets, <laughs> then, you know, and, you know, there's only so many battles sometimes that we can uh -huh. choose, right? And sure. I think this goes back to prioritizing, um, what's key. So, so in a program like this, right, I might, as a parent, I might say, oh, food issues right now. I'm, I, I, I'm glad I got, you know, I got, I got her to eat and I'm good at that. <laughs> right now I can eat or she can eat something, but I can get into this movement thing, right? So, so in your programming that you, um, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's very individualized for, for students um, or for children. Um, you know, how do you decide what the hierarchy is of what to work on, right? Because as you said, none of us are perfect. We can't work on everything. So what, do, you know, help me or walk me through a little bit what that might look like. So I think, you know, good question. We, the first thing we do is measure where the child is and look at all the challenges. And for many of the children, there's a lot of challenges. So, and it is important to then say, well, what are we going to work on? What are we going to do first? Um, so parents can take our course and then they can, look, they, once they understand that taking the course or reading the book, they can look at and say, okay, well, I know what's the most important thing for me. 
So they they will then kind of decide what they want what they want to or feel they need to work on first. Um, a lot of going you know looking at the food you know we keep food very high on the list. It's it's always the priority, right? We all need to eat and we all need to eat healthy, and we all get off track at times and we find ourselves eating things and too much of something we shouldn't be eating, and you don't feel so good, and then you have to say okay get back on track again here, stop the night, nighttime snacking, get back into my healthy healthy uh, regime again and put that stuff aside. And uh, so it's always, always high on the list. But it's true, sometimes it's really, really difficult. And it might not be the first thing that we might start uh, with a child. Same thing with crawling on your belly. That might be something that a child really, really needs to do. But some of our, the children we work with, the parents can't even get them on their bellies. They won't even lie down. So if first time might be mom is going to lie on her belly 10 times a day and say, it's possible to lie on your belly. I know I can't get you to do it right now, but I can show you and I'm going to do it 10 times a day and just lie there and show you. And I'm not even going to try moving yet. So sometimes some of these things literally are just modeling for the child and showing them. And that creates that ability too. And that starts to change the brain. If we're modeling good, healthy eating and we're modeling these things for our child, that for, that might be the first step for many parents is to say, we're going to eat healthy and um, and we're going to show our child how to eat first. And that would be the first step. And then we're going to uh, start the smells and introducing the child at the table and other times in the day, bring down the sensitivity and then some of those other foods are just not going to appear and the and the new foods. And we work with the parents. You know, some parents choose to, they say, I want to go cold turkey. And we're like, okay, well, let's do it together. Let's work together. We're, you know, we're on a hotline with them because they, you know, we've worked with the child. We understand, you know, sometimes we'll say, mm, maybe wait a little bit before we, let's start this first before you go cold turkey on that. And other times we're going to totally agree with the parents or we're going to do it together. So we decide when we're working with the family, what's going to work best for them, whether they're ready, whether they want to dive into one area and really focus on that for a while, or whether we want to start a little bit of a few things and ramp up. Um, so certainly we tailor make it for for the family, for the child, and and what kind of and and then a lot of the times, of course, parents are asking us, "What do you think?" And we're saying, "Okay, well, let's look at the brain. Let's understand where it is. This is probably the best thing, and and we're here to support you as you start to introduce these these first few things." Yeah, and I think there's some generalities in our book. Our, the book starts out by saying, "If we're going to heal the brain, we have to start with neurochemicals." You know, we have to start with the neurotransmitters. And of course, so we'll say, well, let's see if we can make good nutrition for the home. What are our cleaning products? Let's make good nutrition for the air. Or is our air filtered? We live in Mexico City or we live in Los Angeles. That, that can affect the brain. How about we, we look at um, how much water does a child get in a day? And he might drink, drink tons and tons of fruit juices and tons and tons of rice milk and soy milk and coconut milk, which seems okay, but the kidneys have to do a lot of work to get the H2O, get the water out. So how do we slowly, by evolution, move towards, you know, water is 90% of your brain, the emotional parts of your brain. What's going on with the water? What's going on with my environment? What's going on with the perfumes and toxins in my home? How about can I have nutritious routines in the day? 
Can I get up in the morning and not argue with my kids? Can I get them out the door on time? Can I have dinner time at a certain time? So it's amazing how when you have a hurt child that it's really complicated to be organized because they take up so much of our bandwidth. And so one of the things we say is, can we first get the mother back to where she was, she was 16 years old? Because mothers empty their bucket every day. So we do a lot of coaching to give mothers the confidence that it's okay to eat well because a lot of our mothers don't sit down to eat anymore. Well, yeah, we're, we're too busy doing all the other things. You're too busy solving <laughs> 55 different problems. And we're trying to say, okay, how can we help mommy and daddy be them? And then once we help them without guilt, because you, if you put yourself yeah, yeah. first, there's a whole bunch of guilt. Like, oh, I'm not supposed to put myself first. But as you know, the captain should be pretty much the fittest person in the room. But mothers <laughs> empty their bucket way you know, and fathers are what we're stunned. Fathers are stunned <laughs> and mothers are hyperventilating and we don't know what to do. So the book starts out by saying, you know, if we get mommy and daddy on the same page and in alignment, there's a situation where one plow horse can pull, pull, pull four tons, but two plows, plow horses can pull up 23 tons. We say, can we get the family to be in alignment? Then can we add nutrition all across the board? Good air, good water, good routines. You know, add food gradually if the child becomes more tolerant of food. It means the brain grew, but God bless that. That's a good moment. And then gradually over time, we start to change from hysterical to organized. You know, and it doesn't take 15 minutes. It takes a concerted effort. And the book sort of helps parents to move towards this position like, look, you're a superhero. Here's some practical ideas that we found over 40 years. It works. If we do this, it works. If we do this, we get blown up. Why? Because we've been blown up before. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I think it's an important note because, you know, when, again, when you're being faced with a diagnosis, then, you know, I think, you know, there was an article somewhere that I read on your site about you get thrown into so many, um, you know, therapists and doctors and all that. And, and that can take up a lot. You know, it takes up it's a full-time job. I mean, frankly, right. To, to bring your child to the different therapies. We didn't even add if they're going to school, like regular school, you know, if we're back in normal times, you know, like a regular school day, then you add therapies on top of it. Um, it's a full-time job to, to manage that. And I think, you know, I, and I know we've talked about this before that this, this program feels like it can be a good complement to some of that. But I think from what I'm hearing, a big piece of it is also taking care of the caregiver, right? Which is something, you know, I've touched on it before a few times, but I think it's important to know that, you you know, it's okay to take care of yourself, even if you're running around doing all these different things and running around, you know, chasing after your kids and figuring out what the next best thing is on top of the regular home responsibilities, right? And paying bills, cleaning the house and, and working. So we got all these ands. Um, but, but I think it makes a lot of sense that, uh, you know, if you are caring for yourself first, right, you know, or at least some of the time first. <laughs> it's wise. Yeah. It's wisdom. Yeah. I it's think wisdom. it, I think it, it helps everybody involved. Um, and again, if you have, you know, 
parents and other family members that are living with you, right? Any if if you're all working at that same kind of level of health, a couple things I see is, you know, first it's role modeling and it's filling your own cup, right? Like so that you're not empty. Um, and then to your point, it also makes the load lighter for any one right parent or one family member because if it's always one person doing all that running around the other right the, <laughs> there's really very little uh energy left for much of anything else so so I, I like that that approach of you know caring for the caregiver um and i also think this is really relevant for teachers and therapists and other people who work with uh those who have some special needs absolutely yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, both, I mean, parents and, and all, all caregivers can burn out. It's true. Definitely. Yeah. 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 It's really important to prioritize that. There's a natural tendency to sacrifice on behalf of people that you love. It, it's natural. And women have this extra gene that they just can't stop making sure everybody's okay. And what we find is that if we can move her just one step over here to the left, that she, she, and if dads can get involved and help out, because we, we, we really want dads to be involved, um, that we can have a really healthy lifestyle. We can look, sometimes, as Carol says, a lot of times, look, this is a marathon. Can we, can we arrange for our mental health and our physical health and our spiritual health to be robust and in the process come up with a plan that's based on neuroplasticity that we could engage in every day to the best of our ability with our eyes wide open and see if we can support the development of this beautiful human being that we have in our home that for no other reason he is not or she is not doing as well as you know they're not as independent as they want to be not talking as well as they want to be. Can we arrange for the neurology to improve? If we have a half an hour a day, let's make it an awesome half an hour. And then at the end of six months, let's measure that. Are we on the right track? You know, and if we're not, hmm, are there any other neurological developmental strategies we can do that will grow the brain as opposed to manage him? Because someday he's going to be 25. Someday he's going to be 31. And, and, you know, he might be cute at six, but he's also going to be like awesome at 31. But can we track his progress and can we catch up a little bit? And what we find is that if we secure the parents through the heart first, then we can take the chaos and we can move from a chaotic perspective of, wow, I'm all over the place and I don't know where I'm going here. Uh, and I want to be really good at this, but I don't have the foggiest idea what's happening in this kid's brain. And my, and now this is my husband. You know, he's a construction worker, and I'm a lawyer, and I'm not a neurologist. What do we do? So that's why we wrote the book, so that, so that we could bring some clarity, some practical clarity into the brain through the heart of our families. And they make the best therapists. By the way, I love therapists. I was one of them. I still am. But I can't heal your child better than you. There's no possibility. I can help you. But when your child looks at you and you're trying to get him to eat chicken, that he'll go like, uh, at least I trust her. But he won't trust me as much <laughs> as he trusts you. 
No, that's a, that's a fair point. And I, so, so one of the things I want to bring it back to, and, and, you know, again, this is maybe coming off scope of a little bit of what, you know, what our, our original design was here. Um, but I think it's an important point to make. I've worked with a lot of students where families are not, you know, intact or they don't have the resources or the time or the support that it sounds. I mean, again, we're talking about, and I think you mentioned this in another interview is, you know, this is, these are challenges that may present for a lifetime, right? And what we hope to do is, you know, mitigate as much as we can or build strategies and tools in to help as, you know, as we grow into adults that we can better manage any symptoms or perhaps some of them, you know, resolve and maybe new ones occur, but we now have better tools to kind of help. Um, but, but so many kids, especially those with special needs, come from families that do not have means or um, are struggling themselves in a variety of different ways. How can, you know, the, the information that you're offering here also be used in a different way for those kids who maybe don't have, you know, the kind of family support system that, you know, we would love all children to have, but maybe they just, for a lot of reasons in this world, don't have that. Well, I think, um, and going back to a little bit to Matthew's point, one of the things that we have found over the years is that with, in your Obviously, our goal eventually is, is that, that the whole family can be healed, and the whole. And one of the things that we find is that when a child with challenges comes, you know, is in the family, the mother empties her bucket. The father doesn't understand and know what to do, so he goes out and works more, and he's just looking for ways to. Okay, I'll just work more, and I'll be more busy, and I'll try to bring more money in to help this at this situation. But I don't really know what to do. When the parents both learn the, that they can do something to change their child's brain and they understand their child's brain, then we find that then fathers have a role. So they mm. actually have a role to mm. play. They become engaged. They do, exactly. and they become more engaged. Mm. So that in and of itself can be healing to the family. Um, now, talking to the, the children who've already gone through a family when they didn't have any form of healing or coaching to be able to, to help them through that process. And now you've got a young person in college or what, what, at an older age, this information you know, can be helpful for them as well, for them to understand when we're working with families with young adults, um, yes, they've got their parents uh, hopefully coaching them or they might have a grandparent coaching them or a coach coaching them. It's helpful to have a coach. We all can do with coaches, no matter what stage of development we're at and what stage we're in our life, to have somebody outside coaching us through any challenges that we've we've got can be, uh, can be really helpful. Um, but this information to understand the brain is, you know, when when young people get to the age where they're able to sit in a classroom, we have we have them attend the, attend the classes with their parents, and now of course, or, or with their coach, or even on their own. We've had young people come on their own and say, "I want to understand my brain and help me create a create a program and a plan for myself." So even at that stage where they can they can learn the information, they can learn learn to understand themselves and implement simple basic activities for themselves as well. This is you know, as Matthew often says, this is not rocket science. Yes, it's scientifically based. <laughs> But it's you know, create a smell. Go to your go to your your cabinet and get out some cinnamon and smell it five times. <laughs> and a you day. know, we've had we've had neurologists take this class and say, 
they learn more about neurology than they learned in 10 years of, of, of practice. You have occupational therapists and physical therapists take the class and go, I can't believe I got it off track. I can't believe I would, I can't believe, hold on, this is going to make my practice so much easier. So we're in the process of opening up a large educational program in Columbia. We have a lot of our courses online now, and we're just trying to say, look, this is a practical way to look at the brain. And we, we really want to have the, we, our desire is that we all sit down at the table and say, this is how the brain works. Isn't this really cool? And, and you know, you can measure it as soon as the child's born. And no matter where along the line, he could be 25 years old. If he's struggling and he can't be independent at home and he can't be independent in the job, let's go find out what part of his brain is not so happy. And then let's develop strategy for two hours a day to see if we can make this part of the brain really awesome. How about we all work together? Can we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, if we do this, this, and this, we can get this, this, and this. Okay. And so we are just happy <laughs> to be working with anybody who cares about anybody, who cares about the person with the brain, so that we can develop practical ways to work with physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists, and and folks who just adore their children or adore their patients, and they say, you know what, could I be smarter at this? If you're, uh, like I'm 63, could I be smarter at this? You bet I could. And I don't plan on dying anytime soon. At least I hope to God not. And I suspect in 10 years, I'll look back and go, oh, I can't believe I didn't know that back then. You know, because science is awesome in showing like, hey, the brain grows and clinicians we're supposed to be the practical arm of the scientist. We're not. We're supposed to be working like in a team here. They do stuff and go, oh yeah, neuroplasticity exists. The brain grows. Glial cells tell the brain to do this, and you know, cells migrate over here. You get three hundred thousand new brain cells a day to the hippocampus. What do we do with those? Blah blah blah. blah. I'm going. I got a plan. <laughs> and if we, if we do this, 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 we can do this. And so we have this practical book that we made that we we hope that we can get into the hands of you know teenagers in high school who want to know about the brain to mothers and fathers to therapists and occupational therapists who care and say i'm not smart enough i'm going to be better oh these people over here they say this this and this they have results okay let me read their book let me see if it makes sense and uh, that's our hope is that we are in this big community of players who are seeking ways to heal as opposed yeah. to manage. Right. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So I, I definitely think, um, so if people wanted to find your book, can they find it on Amazon? I know that's how most people mm -hmm. <laughs> buy books these days. Yes. I <laughs> hope they still do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on oh, Amazon. Yeah. It's Barnes and Noble, a few, a few other booksellers as well. And uh, yeah, so it's, very straightforward and of course we've got our website the family hope center and uh all our we have um some of our, our courses are available and a lot of education videos are available you know for free so um if anybody goes on that or goes on our facebook there's a lot of free content there's a lot of free so, content we try to give out as much as we can um and educate and you know the healing the brain is a process and it's a process that we walk our families and parents through to learn about the brain don't jump to what to tell me what to do. It's important to know why you're doing it. So we do walk parents through that process and and 
anyone who's wanting to learn this for their own uh, brain healing project, as our medical director <laughs> likes to call it. Um, so, and she says, anyone who's got a brain, you can be healing your brain, right? I so, mean, there's parts in this book for sure that's going to make your eyes cross because it's going to push <laughs> a couple. Of, we're going to we pushed a bunch of buttons in this book. Mm -hmm. We totally pushed some buttons. I get it. You know, but if I asked you what's the moon made of, well, if somebody said to me, Matthew, what's the moon made of? The first thing that comes in my mind is cheese. And I can't stop thinking cheese because my mother told me the moon was made of cheese and she loved me and she was really serious when she said it. So I believed everything she said until I was 13. But there's all kinds of things out there that people hear from other people that says, look, this is a fait complete. If your child is this, Blind at six months of age, that's it. Game's over for blindness. But we find that 93% of our kids who come blind, no matter what age, can see in 18 months. And I didn't do that. I thought the parent had to do it. Parents are the heroes. We're just like, okay, if you do this and this, you'll turn on this circuit and this part of the brain. If you do this. So there's a lot of ways which we push a bunch of buttons that say seizures doesn't Seizures are a signpost. They're not the problem. They're a symptom of the problem. If you do this, this, and this, the brain will regulate itself. So it does not have, have a seizure. Well, that makes everybody have a headache because they've been thinking that they have to medicate their child for three, with three medications. So we go through a scientific pathway and say, this is actually what's happening. Now, chew on that bone for a little while. Don't throw the book against the wall <laughs> yet. You could jump on it, but come back to it and read again and go like, does it make sense that if you do this, then you could turn on this circuit and this circuit guides this ability and you can, you know, so it does push a bunch of buttons. We're not afraid to push buttons because they're all scientific buttons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, anything, as we learn, right, pushing those buttons is what gets us to think a little bit more, gets us to be more critical. Um, and also, you know, pick and choose what makes sense for us. But if everything was just easy and not pushing any boundaries at all, well, I don't know, to me, that would be a pretty boring life, honestly. So um, I think well, it's when about... you have a hurt child, life is not boring. You are, oh, no, your that's, hair's that's on fire. Very true. <laughs> it's not boring, but at and least you don't want to push that yeah. many buttons, but you want to push the right ones. <laughs> right, right. But it, but it's definitely gives you food for thought and um, a different perspective, which is what I always want to be able to offer um, anyone I'm working with or anyone that listens in or anyone that is, you know, trying to kind of make their way is here is more information, right? And here is more um, something that, you know, maybe you hadn't thought of or a different perspective you hadn't thought of, or maybe it, it works in tandem with something else you're already doing, or maybe it works better for one child and then it does for the other child. Like, you know, you just don't know. Um, but when you're armed with more information and with more tools and more resources, it just makes everybody, exactly. right? That more, exactly. that's much more powerful. this is a tool, this powerful. is a resource yeah. that's um, 240 pages uh, that you say to yourself, do I have enough agency right now to plow through 30 pages a night for the next seven nights and see if there's anything in this book that I could use in a practical way to support my family and my kids. And um, yeah, and so, yeah, that's a, I appreciate that you see that. I appreciate that you create a pathway for more people to learn more information in a crazy, 
crazy situation, right? And, 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 all, and, all, and as parents, we all want to stand on our toes and present the best possible, you know, life for our kids, right? We always want our kids to stand on our shoulders. So appreciate that you create a podcast where people can talk about things and talk to parents who are looking for better options, looking for more sane options that won't blow up their family, but can heal their family. Well, thank you for offering another um, another perspective and for offering more tools, which I love. Um, and thank you for being here and for for sharing. Um, and you know, thank you for those kind words. I think uh, it's it means a lot that uh, I can you know if I can help you know one family, one person, then then that's you know that's what it's about. So and and I mm -hmm. know the work that you do is uh, similar, but it sounds like you're helping a lot of people. So, um, but I will definitely put all of your information your contact where to find all your stuff um, so that people can look for you and reach out if they need help great thank you thank, thank you. you for inviting us yeah thank you very much all right well you have a good one take care you too. thank you you thank too you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.